Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Shorts Weather Podcast, the podcast where we show how the Midwest truly is the best. I am your host, Emily Campbell, and it's good to be back. I took quite the, I don't know if I'm going to call it leave of absence, sabbatical, you can call it whatever you want when it's your podcast, but definitely took a break, which was good for a couple reasons. I was really busy with work. As I know I've mentioned before, I do a lot of on-campus recruiting, and that busy season is beginning of September through the end of October, and so I didn't have time to devote to the podcast like I want to. Um, A good planner would have recorded some episodes beforehand, and I definitely didn't do that, but I think it was just good to take a reprieve and really work on figuring out who I'd like to have on the show, what direction I want to take it in, um, and roll out kind of some new ideas and some new new styles, I guess, maybe, um, of episodes and interviews and things like that. So I'm excited to be back. I really like doing this podcast, especially in the winter, because I have time to focus some energy into it and really make it my own, which, I mean, I can do that in any any episode. (laughs) It's my podcast. I understand that. But I feel like I just have the time this time of year to really devote to being creative with it and maybe taking it in different directions that I wouldn't necessarily have time to other times of the year. So this episode, though, is one that I have been waiting to record since I started the podcast. So before I even started my first episode, I made a list of people I think would make great guests. And today's special guest was almost at the very top of that list. And as you saw by the title, my guest today is Bob Harris. So Bob is actually a former boss of mine, which we'll talk about more in the episode, but really just a wonderful mentor and a very close friend and somebody that I feel very lucky to have in my life. And so it just felt really natural to have him on the show and tell some stories that are favorites of mine, but also to hear some stories that even I have never heard before. Um... So a little heads up before we get into this episode, there is a little bit of race car racing, either lingo or some names. Um, Bob does a really good job of explaining a lot of things, and we don't do a ton of that, um, but there may be a few words here and there that you're like, I don't know who that is, or I don't know what that means. I promise you're still going to get the gist of the episode, um, but just kind of keep an ear out, I guess, for maybe some words or names that you may or may not know. Um, But I also know there's some stories about some pretty prominent individuals that I almost guarantee that you, who probably isn't a race fan, have even heard of. So I'm going to shut up. I had a, um, well, you know who you are, had a fit that my intros are too long, so I'm trying to do better about making them concise. So I'm going to leave it at that really quickly, though. If you are new to the podcast, make sure that you subscribe and leave five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. That's a really great way to support me and the podcast for free. And of course, take some time to sit back, grab a cup of coffee or hop in the car and come along for a ride with me and my former boss, Bob. So one thing, I mean... Obviously, I worked for you for quite a while, and it was really easy to explain, like, what I did at my job. 
And it was really easy to explain, like in a very general sense, like what BHE was, what the business was. But like, because you've done so many things, Bob, it was always hard to describe you. So like, how would you, to give like an intro of yourself, like the like Spark Notes or Cliff Notes version, like how would you like introduce yourself? Like what's the high level stuff everybody should know? Or like, how did, how would you write your LinkedIn bio? Um, well, it, it's just, uh, you, you know, normal, normal stuff, really. It's just kind of one of those situations where I've been fortunate. Um, you know, I grew up as a kid uh, on a farm, and um, the farming life was um, maybe more quiet than what I had in mind for life. And so... You know, just to kind of give you a general sense, I, you know, I've just been involved in the auto racing industry for over 40 years and I've done pretty much about everything in, in all sides of, of the industry. Uh, I've been fortunate to be involved in NASCAR. I've been fortunate to have my own business building IMCA type race cars and I've been on the promotion side of it, doing the Harris Clash, and and uh, so I, I've had I've had the privilege of being involved in pretty much everything on the auto in the automotive or auto racing industry. Well, and it's funny because you and I talked about a lot. You know your your farm background, and that was something that we shared in common. Do you remember, like, growing up, was there ever a certain point where you realized, like, I don't think the farm life is for me, you know, especially at that time, it was so much more common for somebody that grew up on the farm to go back to the farm. And, you know, you you grow up, you go to high school, and then you go back and work either on your own farm or someone else's. So was there, like, when did you go, I don't know if this is for me? Well, probably I would have to say early um, in my life, probably in age 13, 14, um, my dad became very sick. And so I had to, as a kid, had to do more of the responsibilities around the farm. And, and it wasn't that I didn't like the responsibilities. I mean, I, I, I always got along fine with animals. And I mean, it's just growing up in the farm, allowed me to get along with animals or uh, it was either you figure out how to get along with them or it's just going to be tough. But uh, I think the the repetition of being on a cultivator and going at three mile an hour up and down and up and down and up and down the field just kind of got to that point where there's got to be more to that. Well, then we lived on the farm that we lived on there was uh, every Saturday night in Jackson, Minnesota, they had, which what they called at that point in time was modifieds, but they were kind of like a coupe kind of type car. And every Saturday night, I would see these cars go up the highway beside our our house. And I just, I, I kind of, I don't know, I got to be kind of a car nut at an early age. I liked building model cars and I mean, it just, I, I just enjoyed being, I don't know, anything to do with cars or anything to do with mechanic stuff. I mean, I'm quite sure I repaired stuff that didn't need to be repaired on the farm, and then my dad would probably have to fix it. 
but uh, uh, you know, it was just one of those situations. And, and so then I kind of kept bugging him to take me to the races since I figured that's what those guys were going after. And, and man, I, ever since then, I mean, the first time I ever sat inside of a racetrack on the bleachers, that was just, that, that was the ultimate, man, those, that, that whole car thing. And so that's kind of how I started. Do you remember that very first race that you went to? Oh, pretty much, yeah. I can remember. And, and, in fact, it was and back then, uh, the late Bob Shirock was one of the racers. And, and there was, you know, kind of a, back then, it was a Ford versus Chevrolet. And there was some Pontiacs and, you know, all kinds of different stuff because they were true stock cars back then. And... uh uh, the night that we were there, uh, the late Bob Shirek ended up winning. And uh, then his car always was kept. I went to Esterville schools for school. And when we would go out to do recess or go out for uh, gym, gym class or whatever, his car was always sitting across the street from where the school was. And he was the one that won the night that we were there. And so I just kind of would ask my folks if well, my mom worked as a nurse. So a lot of times I could hang out and come home with her rather than riding the bus. And uh, then I would go down there and kind of hang out as a nosy kid trying to see what was going on. And, and then, you know, we, we just ended up, and then when my dad got pretty ill and we had to move off the farm because we sold the farm. Uh, then a couple of us kids uh, went digging through junkyards and we found a, an old 57 Ford like what Bob Shirock had. And I was confident we could build a race car and we didn't have a clue what we were doing, but we ended up building a race car. Was this, so this was like siblings or this was friends from school or who was in this group that built this car? Um, okay. My, my uh, family, I was a, a a lot younger than the rest of my family. So it was, it was just a, two of my buddies and I had nothing else to do once we got home from school, but either go to the salvage, you know, I mean, the salvage yard there in town. I mean, that was, that was the thing for me is go to, dig through old cars and just see what you could find. And, I mean, kept us out of trouble. <laughs> so this first car, like, tell me a little more about that. Cause I know that obviously, you know, you and I have talked enough. I know that you did build that first car, but I, like really what, first of all, was it any good? Maybe that's um, be the first actually, question. It ended up being pretty decent. Uh, it was kind of one of those deals where, once again, we really didn't have a clue what we were doing, but we, you know, we would go down in the pits after the races and we'd look at these cars and, and then we would kind of try to replicate what, what we could see. And keep in mind, this is three 14 year old kids. And so we, it was just one of those deals. And we had a, a local blacksmith that lived a block away from where I lived and I'd go over there and hang out and bug him. And he was one of them guys that uh, when we lived on the farm, we that's where we always took our stuff to get welded or get our stuff repaired. And, and he was, you know, the Mr. Fix-It for farm stuff. And so I convinced him that he could build a roll cage and, 
and we found some tubing and we I mean just we were pretty resourceful back then when we wanted to be. And where did you race that first car? I mean, was that when you yeah. were 13? Yeah, I was absolutely. I was 14. I didn't actually race it because we couldn't get in the pits because that was a deal where back then you had to be 18 years old to be in the pits. So we would sit in the stands and we ended up by getting to know the late Bob Shirock, um, we got to meet other people and and we we built this car and we had this car and a guy by the name of Ken Seidels was a friend of Bob's and Bob says, these kids have built this car and, and, you know, we pretty much put bars in it, like what his car had in it. And, you know, like I said, we just pretty much duplicated what he had. And, and uh, so then my dad kind of became the sponsor and uh, we got an engine built and we got stuff put together. And, and then this Ken Seidel's ended up actually driving it. My brother and one of his relatives on his wife's side ended up being part of our pit crew, and so it was kind of a a family deal, so to speak. And and uh, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And then, of course, then we just got to the point where you know my salary as a fourteen year old wasn't really advantageous, and you know dad was good enough to help us get started, but it was kind of one of those deals where. It just didn't didn't last. I mean, you know, we did it for two years, but it, it just was still was expensive. So you had that first car, and it, that went on for two years. So then, what happened? I mean, after that, then what did you well, do? Well, then I, I just actually then I just started helping Bob Shirock because by by that point in time, I think they changed the pit rules to six, you had to be sixteen. So, like, if you had a driver's license, you could go in the pits. And so then uh, I got to be one of Bob Shirock's pit crew guys, and we just started going to the races with him and, and all that kind of stuff. And then later on, it must have probably been when I was, I'm going to say probably when I was 19 or so, um, we ended up through being pitting with Bob, I got to know a lot of the other racers and, and become friends with the other racers. And and then Bob Weber from Burt had a car that needed some repair work done on it. And he sold it to us at a pretty reasonable price. And, and that's where I actually started racing myself. So then I actually raced myself in 1978, 79, and 1980. Well, at that point in time, I worked at John Morrell, the packing house, so, you know, and I lived at home, so I could afford to uh, spend money on a race car and do certain things like that. And then, um, then you know, I ended up getting married and having a kid, and then all of a sudden, the race car kind of had to go, and I ended up going back as a pit crew guy. And, and, uh, and then when I had my car, it was one of those deals where... I was fortunate from time to time to put other drivers in it. And it wasn't too long for me to figure out that I was a much better crew guy and a much better mechanic than I was a driver. Because whenever I put somebody else in it, we ran up front. Well, that paid a whole lot better when we're, we're getting more money, you know, and not wrecking 
where myself, uh, you know, I got to the point where it paid like at, at Fairmont, Minnesota, it paid a hundred dollars to win the B, and then it paid a uh, hundred dollars to finish tenth. Well, I could run good enough to finish tenth. Well, by sandbagging the heat race, winning the B, because my car was good enough to win the B, and I was good enough to usually win the B, and then finish 10th in the feature, I made as much money as the guy finishing 5th in the feature that didn't run the B. So pretty soon, you know, I'm calculating this all out from the dollar standpoint. Well, then it just kind of got to that point where that wasn't, I mean, the money part was what was driving me or, you know, more the, the business side of the racing got to the point where it was more interesting to me than actually driving and being a driver myself. And then I kind of switched it and started getting involved with having other people race my car and we'd race some specials and we'd make some good money. And, and then, uh, you know, that's kind of how it went. So when you kind of had maybe that realization that, you know, I like, oh, well, maybe driving isn't for me. Maybe the other parts are. Was that at all? I feel like I feel like if it was me and maybe this is just me personally. I feel like that would almost be kind of like a a little knock to your pride of like, oh, like I'm not I'm not as good of a, as of a driver as, as like I want to be or I thought I was. Was that at all? did it, I don't know if hurt your pride is the right word, or did it seem like a very natural thing to switch to being more of a, a crew man and a um, team owner, maybe? Well, I think it got to the point where, you know, once again, the business side of it, rather than spending the money out of my own pocket, it was easier to pay a driver a percentage, and I'd end up having a larger percentage to fund the race car to the point where so it kind of made sense. Um, in, in answer to your question, sure, everybody always wanted to get the trophy and kiss the trophy girl. That was, the, that was the, I mean, that's just the ultimate. But uh, it just got to the point where I kind of came to the realization that I was a whole lot better as a setup guy and a whole lot better as a mechanic in setting the race car up to make the race car successful and putting somebody in it that, and what happened to me was the fact that I kind of got to that point where, you know, if I got stuck in a wall and I bent a wheel, that cost X amount of dollars. Where, as a driver that's a hired hired driver, he doesn't think about those things because he's just out there to race. Where I'm out there to race, but I'm all, I'm I'm also I'm also calculating. The, what this expense is going to be when if this doesn't work out and, and things like that. And so it didn't take too long. You know, I, I don't think it really – winning races was more important to me being involved than it was being the actual driver part of it. So at that time, like you mentioned, you were still working at the packing house and working on, you know, working on your race cars so kind of tell me about the transition then from, okay, I have a job and then this racing thing is a hobby. What did that transition period look like? How did you end up to kind of your first jump into the racing thing full time? Well, it got, 
I mean, working in the packing house is not really a glorified favorite job. I mean, it, but it paid good, really good money. And so, you know, and what was happening is, is I'd have to get up every morning at, and be to work at five o'clock in the morning on my packing house job. Now, granted, I'd get home every day by two o'clock or whatever. So it worked out pretty good. Well, then I had time and it got to the point where um, I started doing interiors and building bodies. Well, then all of a sudden people had me do the interiors in their cars and doing the bodies on their cars. Well, then I'm working till midnight getting this stuff done and then still being to work at five in the next morning. Granted, I'm still young, so I can do a lot of that stuff, but it kind of got to the point where I I really didn't like the packing house thing. And I just, you know, all of a sudden it worked out where people would buy some parts from me and I, I was I kind of become a parts dealer for certain companies and, and then it just started real small, but it was enough to the point where you know I could still make a decent living and, and be involved in that part of it, and then it just kept transitioning. And, and pretty soon we started building our own race cars. And, and how we actually ended up doing that was we were it was a company out of uh, uh, Quincy, Illinois. It was called Tri City Buggy, and what you could do is you would buy these cars with the front end basically built and the back end basically built, and then you just kind of put it together. So it's kind of like basically building a large model car. And so that's how we started building the actual cars. And then, then it just got from there where we started building more cars. And we used to build a lot of late model cars. And that's what I originally started with was building late model cars. So describe, because... I mean, I told you earlier, I don't even know how many people really listen to this. And so I certainly don't know how many are familiar with racing. So especially at that time, what was the dirt track racing industry like in Iowa? I mean, for somebody who isn't familiar, it's maybe hard to understand that little old Iowa in the Midwest is one of the dirt track capitals of the world. So what what was the the scope maybe of the racing industry like at that time? Well, the racing industry was always good, um, you know, but it was, it was hobby racers. I mean, you know, people, the, the local guy that, you know, had a couple sponsors and would put, put people's names on their cars and, and stuff like that. And then, but that was kind of back in the day when, a lot of guys built a lot of their own stuff. They might buy an actual chassis from uh, me or whatever, but a lot of the guys would, you know, you, you just start on it, and that's what they did all winter long. That was that was their hobby. I mean, you know, they did. They weren't necessarily fishermen. They weren't necessarily sports guys. I mean, I'm quite sure they were sports guys, but you know, that was the big thing, and and uh, the the group of racers like even in the winter they would get together and they'd have parties and they'd invite a bunch of their racing buddies and and they'd have parties with different people i mean i remember going to lorenz iowa to denny hovengay's place back and you know, he had like a new year's eve party and, and stuff like that so i mean there was always it was a very um family atmosphere 
so to speak. And it was uh, not very commercialized. It was just a bunch of good old boys out there racing each other. And the but the actual industry was was pretty decent. Well, then it's continued to grow and continued to grow and continued to grow and to the point where it still has a lot of that atmosphere, but not as much as it was before. You know, there's a little bit more of a separation, so to speak, you know, in, in but there's, you know, nowadays there's more classes. You know, they didn't have as many classes. Back then, I think they had like three different classes, which was a late model, a sportsman, and a hobby stock. So they basically didn't have, you know, where now you go to some of the racetracks and they have five, six classes of different cars, front-wheel drives and all kinds of, you know, bombers and you, you name it. They got kind of everything. So it's still kind of, like I said, the same, but the, it's it's a huge industry. When you talk, I like commercialization because, I mean, of course, that's what happens to, like, any hobby industry when it takes off. It's not necessarily a bad thing, not necessarily a good thing, but at the time when you were starting your, your business, were there a... Was there a lot of commercialization in hobby racing yet, or kind of were you on the front end of that trend, or what? What was um, that? Like? I would have to say we were probably more on the front end of that trend because, like I said, most most people still when I first started was they kind of had that build it mentality themselves, so to speak. Where I kind of started in the fact that. Well, you could hire somebody to build this and, you know, you could buy a car that was more pre-built, so to speak. Um, you know, and when it comes to the IMCA Modified, we were one of the first ones, you know, they had, they were gremlin bodies. and I mean, some of the most god-awful looking things you ever did see. So when we started in that industry, we cleaned it up and made them look like a small late model car or or something to that point with nice fancy bodies. And and, and then all of a sudden that industry really took off. And and it's, 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 it's unbelievably huge today, you know, because I was thinking about my, my good friend, Chad Weirs. I was thinking about this the other day, just, I was actually working on a frame and it was late Friday afternoon and this customer called and he needed a J bar, which a J bar is basically what holds the rear end in the car. And we were out of them, but I had one on the simulator and the simulator is what I use uh, during the chassis schools that I do to show people what, what's actually going on in their rear suspension. Anyway, so I'm taking this off, and on the way home, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about this, and it's kind of still a little bit the way I'm wired is, you know, this particular item we make, well, we'll just say 50 bucks, okay, if we made 50 bucks on it. Or it was, it was mathematically thinking, you know, uh, $100 is what this part costs. Well, you take, like, Chad Weirs, who makes this part, 
and there's over 4,000 modified drivers, IMCA drivers in the United States. There's probably 3,000 sport mod drivers in the United States. Now, this is just IMCA. Then when you take in the other sanctioning body, there's there's got to be 10,000 technically modified cars in the United States. Every one of them needs a panhard bar. So now you take this 10,000 times 100. Well, now I'm not saying that everybody buys it from Chad Weir's, but let's just do the math and say he gets 70% of the sales. Well, do the math on that. That's pretty huge. Well, that doesn't account for all the all the bent panhard bars that are going to come throughout the season. <laughs> I mean, exactly. You know, so I mean, it's 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 that thing where it's hard for people to understand how this actually, you know, evolves in the industry. But you know, it's just you know, it's it's just like the coke at your quick trip or whatever. I mean, you know, when you calculate, you know, you you don't think too much about it. It's only a hundred dollar part, but then all of a sudden, when you count how many of them there are and blah 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 blah, you're like, whoa. This is huge. When do you think that shift towards, I don't know if commercialization maybe, because today I would say racing feels much, it's still a hobby, but to me, to compare it to the stories I hear from 30 years ago, it's much less of a, like you would say, kind of a fix-it hobby, mechanic hobby type of thing, and almost more of a, a business now for a lot it's not a money-making business but it's almost treated as a business to the individual racer when when did it lose kind of some of that like kind of kitschy garage hobbiness when when do you think that happened and why or do you think that's happened well i think you know i mean you know and i've been accused of of being one of them guys that thought that i i could build it and what we built was so much better than what the average guy could build in his home garage to the point where now all of a sudden these factory-made cars are going faster and they're winning more races. Joe Schmo now doesn't necessarily always mean it's a factory car, but it's, it's, it's the mathematics side of it. If he can afford to buy this car, more than likely he can afford the nice engine. He can afford all the equipment that it takes. So all of a sudden now his budget is so much larger than the next guy on the list. Well, it's just like in everything, you know, money still has an impact on success. And so I think that's kind of what, you know, but answer to your question, I'd have to say probably 20 years ago, uh, you really saw that change. I mean, that's kind of when we started building more cars and doing that kind of thing. Uh, I'd have to say probably 20 years ago is when it kind of started going. And, and there's still some guys that do a lot of their work, but nowadays it's a situation where your job usually takes more hours than it used to. You've got a family, you know, you've got a daughter in softball, you've got a son in baseball, 
you know, so now all of a sudden the time factor of when you can actually build a lot of this stuff, you just don't, the average consumer doesn't have the time. So it just goes back to the same deal where they almost have to buy it to, because they just don't have the time. They've got so many things going on in their family and their work and everything. And it's just like everything else. Um, you know, it's, it's more of a buy it mentality now. Well, and kind of to, I mean, so on one hand, yeah, it's changed. The industry has changed and become more commercialized, but then to another extent, how much of that do you think is just the industry evolving? I mean, how much you've got better technology, that technology is going to cost more either time or money or energy or whatever it might be. So how much of well, it is just the evolving of the industry? Well, and it's just like everything else. I mean, the evolution of the car. I mean, you know, everything that we do today, look at our telephones is, is a prime example of evolution. And the race car is no different, you know, and we're as a manufacturer we're always constantly looking for some new thing that we can do or a different way we can do something to make our cars better because of course we want to be better than our competitor b and competitor c and competitor d and so and we're all working as hard as we can to make that happen and we spend a lot of time you know that's a lot of times that's what i'm doing all the time is working on new ideas, new development stuff, and, and trying to work with customers to get them so that they understand how to use their products better and, and things like that. But yeah, I, I would agree. It's, it's just it's just the times have changed. But the point being, though, is the competitiveness of the racing is just as good as it ever was. There's just as many fans in the stands. So, I mean, it's just a situation where maybe some racetracks maybe don't have the, you know, some of the racetracks that are more isolated from bigger cities, so to speak. They maybe don't have the car counts that some racetracks have, but the racing, even though it's, it's less of a car count, it's still a, a good competitive sport that people enjoy watching. And in today's world, anybody that watches NASCAR, it would be almost hard to ask the general public who won the race at Martinsville last weekend because it was overshadowed by the guy that rode the wall all the way around and passed all those cars on the last lap that went on to win, that went on to go to the championship next weekend in Phoenix. Because it's it was exciting, and that's you know that's, that's why people go to races. When you talk about evolution, and you've mentioned it a little bit, where do the the chassis schools fall into your kind of history? I guess first of all, maybe to get started, give an overview of just where where the chassis school thing started, like the very beginning of that, because I know like when I worked for you, being a part of the chassis schools was one of my favorite things. So how did that all come to pass the very first time? Well, you know, when, when we built race cars, um, you know, one of my philosophies 
always was the fact that if people know how to get the best out of their product, whether it's a TV or you know some piece of merchandise that you buy over the counter, whatever the case is, the more you know about it, the more you're going to get better success or have a better feeling about the product. So when we, early on in, in the Harris Auto Racing days, um, we used to always have a chassis school, and, and then I didn't charge a lot of money for it because it was a situation where I wanted these guys to come to this one-day school and learn about the race cars so they would be successful. If they were successful, we would sell more race cars because people would automatically go, oh, man, the guy with that Harris car, he just kicked our butt. Uh, looks like next year we're going to have to have one of those cars. And that's kind of how our business evolved because we spent quite a bit of time making sure that the customer had a good a good response with their car, a good feeling with what they were doing, and and they were successful because, of course, if they won, whether they won two races or 10 races or 20 races, as long as they won some races, that was pretty exciting. And like I said, so so we started the chassis schools at that point. It was strictly for Harris customers. Well, then after I actually uh, sold the Harris Auto Racing Company, to then I started doing chassis schools as a generic for everybody. And then we've just, and now what we do is we have basically three schools. We have a school for the modified division. And then we have schools for the sport mod division. And we have schools for the hobby stock stock car division. And so we get customers that we usually have. Our schools are usually around 65 people. And we bring in some other people from the industry, uh, from like companies like AFCO and, and companies that um, we do business with. We bring in one of their representatives and and so we spend two days going through the car from the very front of the car to the back of the car and making sure that people understand what what makes what work, why it has to work this way, and, and, and the changes that you need to make to get more success with it and, and that type of thing. Well, I have to back up a little bit. I kind of even forgot to talk, and I've always been curious, too. So... That first business was in Northwest Iowa. Then you talk, you mentioned um, Harris Racing, which was in Story City, correct? Correct. Why or what or when kind of made that shift happen? Well, it was a situation where when I originally started, it was called Bob Harris Racing Products, and that was up in Superior, Iowa, little town between Esteville and Spirit Lake on Highway 9. And then I had the opportunity, uh, a, a guy just decided he wanted to buy my company and, and move us to uh, Independence, Iowa. And so we went to Independence, Iowa. Well, it didn't take too long to figure out that this guy was one of those rich kids that kind of wanted something, but he really didn't have a clue what he was doing. So it wasn't too long, and that business actually ended up basically folding. So I had to pretty much take it back over myself. 
Well, then when I realized that I was going to have to take it back over, because being in Northwest Iowa, we were kind of isolated. Like, like if we went to the races to help a customer, I mean, like if we went to the races at Boone Speedway, it was a three and a half hour drive. So what I did was I took the map of the state of Iowa and I drew a big X on it. And the center of Iowa is right, right around the Story City area. So we looked at cities like Nevada and Story City and some other cities, and we ended up finding a building in Story City that was recently vacated, had an excellent location. It was right there on the interstate. And so then in, in 1987, we moved the company back to, to Story City. And then we were in Story City till the year 2000 when I sold the company again. And then this time I wasn't no longer involved. Well, then after I went through my non-compete agreements and stuff, then I actually restarted the business in 2005, just building shock absorbers. Well, then it was kind of to the point where a lot of our old customers weren't happy with the new owners and, you know, God, you need to do this and you need to do that. And so then we kind of got back involved in more of the building part of it. Uh, we actually don't build our actual chassis today. Our chassis that we, we sell uh, either come out of the middle of uh, Minnesota, B&B &B, uh, chassis up there for our stock cars. And then um, our modifieds are called a GRT race car, which is out of uh, uh, Greenville or, uh, well, anyway, out of Arkansas and uh, Green Valley, or I'm not sure what, I can't remember now. Sorry, I hit a, I hit a spot there. Well, we're not, uh, nobody's going to know what little town it is. <laughs> you could make it up, it won't matter. Greenbrier. Greenbrier. Yeah, That's I think that is right. Yeah, Greenbrier, Arkansas. Well, anyway, so then we go and get them. We build a trailer to haul four at a time so we can go down and get four at a time. And that's kind of how where we're at today. And uh, we've got, I think there's, I got to count here for a minute. I think we have eight employees right now, seven or eight employees. Where when I had Harris Auto Racing and we had that in Story City, we had 22 employees and we used to build 150 cars a year. So and now we sell probably in the neighborhood of 25. Well, and you've talked about the way that even your business has changed, but even some things have remained the same. And one is the one is the chassis schools, which I want to make sure we get back to because I think that's probably one of even to somebody who's not a racing fanatic or not overly interested in racing, the idea of it is still pretty interesting. When you started doing the schools, so back when you had Harris Auto Racing, were were you kind of the first guy to do that sort of educational seminar event for racing? Um, there was actually two of us, a guy by the name of Mark Bush, he and I both started it about the same time. Now, he was out of Pennsylvania, uh, and I was out of Iowa. But around, uh, in in the Midwest here, I was probably the first one to start that 
you know, educating people on how to use the product and get the most advantage out of it. And I think something that people maybe are surprised by, especially people that are outside of racing, is how much there is to learn about those cars. I think a lot of people think, oh, you buy the car, you get in, you drive it, and you try to have the fastest motor and the fastest car. I mean, what were some of the things, even in those early schools, that you were covering that surprised people? Well, it was just the suspension and, and just even in how the brake system works in a race car and how you can make the brake system, you can make, uh, you can adjust the brake system from front to rear and make the car handle differently by how you actually apply the brakes on the car. And there was just so many of those little things that people never really uh, had any idea, you know, about, um, you know, just different coil springs and what shock absorbers and shock absorbers, you know, and we're still in the shock absorber business. That's probably our biggest part of our company is our shock absorber business. But the shock absorbers have been probably the most evolution in the industry of any part on the car. Um, they, they continue to build new parts. And, and, and so that's been pretty good. So educating people where, you know, it used to be the fact that you just you know, you went to the parts store and you bought four shocks or and pretty soon some racing companies started building some, but, you know, you couldn't rebuild them, you couldn't do anything with them. And now all of a sudden I mean, we can make, we can take a race car that's not handling really good and change all four shocks on it. And, and people will think you changed the whole complete race car just because of, you know, and the shock absorber is a timing device and it works with the springs and the spring actually regulates how it moves with the shock absorber regulates how fast it can move. And so we taught, we really work a lot on that and still in the schools today, we spend a lot of time educating people on, the shock absorbers and how they work and when to make those changes. Um, rear suspension, you know, there's different angles that you run the rear suspension at to get more traction and, and, and different things like that. And just moving the rear end a quarter of an inch to the right or a half an inch to the right or the left. And just all those little things that a lot of people never thought of that make such a big difference wheel offsets, you know, and we can get different wheel offsets so the wheel sticks in further or sticks out further. And, and just tire staggers, another example, we're having a right rear tire that's two inches bigger around than the left rear tire, how it makes the car work. And, and so that's the kind of stuff that we teach these in these schools. Is, it's just mind-boggling how it, it, it really is fairly complex well and that's that's the other thing i can remember so when i was in college and we would have the schools which for anybody listening i i wasn't teaching them i was making like snacks <laughs> but i was there and my i would talk to my friends and they would say oh what did you do at work today emily i'd say oh well we had chassis schools which you know i loved again because i got to make snacks i got to hang out and meet people and just talk to people all day long but i said oh it's really fun and we get racers come in from everywhere and you kind of got the like deer in the headlights look like how do you get two days of school on how to drive a car for people that already know how to drive i think what people don't realize is how much geometry engineering aerodynamics is in i mean any mechanical process but especially racing yeah. 
how did you pick up on some of that? Because I know if you'll have to remind me, but your your background after high school, you did an accounting degree, correct? Yeah, actually, I went to school to be an to take a business accounting is what I went to college for, and uh, so yeah, but. But my passion always was in the racing part of it to the point where, you know, I, I just enjoyed it. And, and I would look and, you know, I was kind of one of those guys that, I don't know, I could maybe be kind of a pest in the sense to the point where if somebody was faster than what we were, I mean, I was down there bugging them. Well, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And, and most of the time, and I was young enough at that point in time, they didn't run me out of there. I mean, most of the time, people would say, get out of here. I'm not telling you nothing. Or, I mean, you know, some people. But I was young enough to the point, and I was polite enough that these guys would just like me, and they would tell me stuff. And then I'd get to looking at their cars, and I'd watch how their cars did things on the racetrack. And I'm like, you know, and I'd just pick up on the different things of the race car. Well, then, of course, over the course of the years, I have got to the point where, you know, I've watched so many race cars and watched them do so many different things that I can pretty much watch the race car itself make 10 laps on a racetrack. And I can pretty much tell you the things that need to be done to it to make it work better by watching what it actually did. And and sometimes, it, you know, it's, it's, it's driver, of course, too. But once again, like you said, the geometry in this stuff anymore is it's it's just phenomenal. I mean, you know, we last year we built this. It's called a pull bar, but what it actually is, it's a device that that kind of holds the rear end in place from going front to back. But there's a spring, and then you can actually put different spring rates and different rubber biscuits and stuff like that on how to get the car to hook up and get more traction. Well, we actually got involved with a guy that was down in North Carolina that was an engineer and he designed this thing, but he really wasn't a dirt guy. He was a pavement guy. So he didn't really know what the stuff was. So we ended up working on a team, working on a partnership with him to the point where we developed this thing. And it was kind of like I was talking about Chad's Polar, well, or Chad's Panard book. When we developed this thing, it was amazing how many we have sold of that particular part and the success rate that that particular part has actually had. And it's, it's been a big, a, a big plus to our business. Well, Bobby, my son who works for me, he's kind of the younger version of me to the point where, you know, he likes working with things and making things work a little differently and stuff like that. And so, yeah, him and this guy worked together and kind of developed it to the point where it's a pretty neat part. And that's the deal where we sell that part to people all over the United States. That that might be the only thing they might buy from us, but it's that particular part to help them win more races. So when you're watching a race, you're sitting in a track, you're watching a race, do you just see, you know, entertainment, you're watching cars go around a track, or when you look at the track, are you seeing numbers and angles and shapes? And I mean, what's it like in your head to just watch a race? Well, you know, of course, I'm watching the guy that's winning because there's a reason he's winning. 
And I want to figure out why he's doing that so that I can help my customers do the same thing. But it's it's kind of like when I stepped out of the driver's seat way back when and put somebody else in one of my cars. Now we've got these customers that we have such a good relationship work with that if my customer goes and he wins a race, it's like me winning a race myself because we have so much pride in our product that when they're successful, we're successful. And, and it just, that's the enjoyment for me. For me to go to the races and just sit and watch races, I, 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 I don't, I don't know if I could actually do it. Um, for me, it's more like working with the customer and watching the customer's car and helping them work their product and get it better and making them do it. So it's still a fan. And, and I, I watch a lot of races. Like I watch NASCAR races and I'm still a fan of those guys. And I watch what, and that's probably the only part where I'd have to say I'm actually a true fan. Cause like when I go to say Boone Speedway or, Kasuth County Speedway or any place like that, I'm actually going there as a job. And I'm going there with the attitude that I'm going to make every customer that we have there the best they can possibly be. And so sometimes it's, I don't know, it's kind of redundant in the point where, you know, you do the same thing over and over and over again. And, and so it's it's just a different level of entertainment or enjoyment for me. And I know at every era in your history, in your career, but I can think of one in particular during that, like the Harris era, you've had some pretty, pretty well-known or pretty famous, whether it be customers or people interact with your, your products, your cars, um, one in particular that comes to mind would have been your relationship with Dale Earnhardt Sr. That was a lot of fun. I mean, he was a he was a different guy, um, super nice guy, do anything in the world for anybody. He kind of had this um, cast iron approach to the point where he was he was kind of like Mister Tough Guy all the time. But when you really got to know him, he really was a, a really nice guy. And him and, and Ken Schrader was another one that we worked very closely with and we got to be good friends with. And, and in fact, I was offered a job by Hendrick Motorsports. And actually, that was back, um, gosh, I don't know how many, way, way back early in my racing, you know, when I still owned a business. And it was kind of a situation where I went down there and spent time down there, and I went to some of the races with Ken Schrader. And it was kind of to the point where we just, uh, I don't know. I don't deal with, uh, I'm not real good with dealing with unsurmountable issues that make no sense to me whatsoever. Um you know, and, and sometimes those people make the simplest decision a very complex decision. And it was just to the point where, you know, 
let's do something and let's make this change and see what happens rather than analyzing it for two or three hours and then making, gosh, should we do it or should we not do it? And pretty soon we got half the day gone and we've been discussing this. <laughs> well, I'm kind of like, okay, what's the odds? What's the pros and cons? Is this going to work? Is this not going to, you know, just let's do it. We'll and if it didn't work out, we got plenty of time to change it and do something else rather than. So I'm not real good with those scenarios. Uh, and I'm still, I've gotten better with them, but not so much. So anyway, needless to say that there was way too many politics involved for me to actually take a job like that. I, I didn't figure I would be very good at it. Well, then I got this uh, a kid by the name of Brett Moffat. Uh, his dad saw me at the races one night and said, I'd like to hire you to help my, my son become a, a NASCAR race car driver. And, of course, my first response was, yeah, right, like everybody's dad wants to do that. You know, and he said, no, I'm serious. I, and I've been talking to people, and everybody that I've talked to said, you're the guy to training. And I'm like, okay, well, let me think about this. So I thought about that for a while. And then it, he was a short, chubby little 14-year-old. And, and I'm kind of like, oh, man, uh, I don't know. Well, needless to say, we decided to do that. And, and, of course, he ended up becoming a NASCAR driver and ended up being a NASCAR truck champion. And it was fun, probably one of the more rewarding things I've done. And I've had the privilege of working, and that's one of the things that I've done a lot, working with younger kids and kind of helping them learn how the race car works how they need to drive the race car and different things like that. So I've had, that's another part of my educational process is I've, I've worked with a lot of um, really cool people, a lot of young people. Uh, but yeah, Dale Earnhardt Sr., he was, that was pretty cool. Watching him win a race at, uh, you know, I'm, and it was kind of comical. We're sitting in the pits and we're talking about stuff. And I'm telling him, well, this is what this is supposed to do. This is when you should do this. And this is how this is supposed to work. And he said, this is a Tuesday night in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You don't need to sound like the guy that I have to listen to on Sundays. <laughs> and and you know, I was like, well, I'm just trying to tell you. I mean, I'm, I, I, yeah, I don't know. But uh, so, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. So the the chance maybe you took, I don't know if it's more you took a chance on Brett Moffat or took kind of a chance on yourself and your own abilities, but what was that process like of taking a, a young kid who, if I remember correctly, maybe had like some go-kart background and that's about it. How, how did you even begin to kind of peel back the layers of, okay, how, how do we tackle this in a way that's going to be productive? Well, his dad had gotten him a sport mod car, so I was pretty familiar with the car, and I was pretty familiar with the kid. Uh, it was just one of those situations where, I don't know, we we just, him and I kind of struck a bond off the bat, and I'm, and I'm pretty, I'm kind of a, a no-nonsense kind of guy, so I'm, I'm pretty straightforward. And so, you know, a lot of times 
when we first started working with him, I'd ask him different questions about what the car did and all that, and he'd shrug his shoulders. And I'm listen, listen, little dude, this is not how that's going to work. You're out there to run. You're out there bouncing around while you're doing that. You're supposed to be thinking about what this car is doing because you need to answer these questions so I can make you better. Well, then he got to the point where he was pretty good at, at giving me information and then that's kind of how we grew together. Then when we went ASA racing and then we went to the K&N series in NASCAR, I stayed with him and I was kind of his driver coach. And then what we would do is like on the way to the races, because we flew a lot of the places, um, I would log a map or I would get a, a, an aerial view of the actual racetrack they were going to. And I'd point out on the race, you know, and then I'd put the uh, point out on the racetrack the different spots this is looking like where these guys run this looks like this is a good spot you, know, you need to arc the car in here it looks like you might need to arc it a little bit more run a little bit higher and turn the car down things like that well then we had this map on the toolbox so then when we would go do um, practices then we'd come in and he'd say, no, right here, it feels like it's doing this. And then I'd tell him, well, and right here, you're actually shortcutting the corner. You need to actually, once again, remember we talked about this, you need to arc the car in a little better, roll it in so that the car rolls more on its own. And, and it got to be a, a lot of fun and to the point where, the, but then when we went to the K&N series, we got into the NASCAR series, and that was actually with Joe Gibbs Racing. Once again, then it kind of got a little more political. And what happens is, and it still happens in, in NASCAR today, there's three things that can go wrong usually. The driver can make a mistake, the crew chief can make a mistake, or the spotter can make a mistake. Well, I was his spotter, which is the spotter is the guy that stands up in the, up, up in the, top of some tower and he's watching the race car and so he's telling the driver you know you're clear you can pass this guy different things like that well it kind of got to the point where with his dad there's no way it was the driver's fault with joe gibbs there was no way it was the crew chief's fault so I'm the odd man out that evidently the spotter must not have gave him the right information. And then it got to that point where, and that's when I had started going back into my own business, building shock absorbers and stuff. And so then uh, when he went to uh, Waltrip Racing, I didn't go with him. I just I, I decided it was time to work on my own business and do that stuff too. Was that a tough decision to make, or was it? Did it seem pretty? Natural? No, not really, because it got really political that last year that I was with them to the point where it was, uh, you know, it would just I would just sit there, and some of these decisions they're making, I mean, I'm, I'm just, it's not right, but I couldn't say nothing because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a small, small piece of the equation in this deal, and. I'm a dirt guy, and we're racing asphalt, so automatically this dirt guy can't possibly know anything, and which actually wasn't true because the point where I'm confident I was way smarter than the crew chief that we had. 
Well, that's not the first time that you uh, decided that the NASCAR life wasn't for you. I mean, earlier you'd had an opportunity that you turned down to work with Jeff Gordon's team, right? Right. And it was just a situation, like I said, it, uh, it's lost like dealing with a big corporation. There's too many bosses. There's too many channels that you have to go through. Everything moves slowly. Um, and it's it just, uh, it just wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't something that I could feel that I would be, I couldn't be just happy showing up and getting a paycheck. Um, that, I'm just not that, I'm just not that kind of guy. I mean, it's just, I, I'm driven by more success and, and, you know, having customers have success and just being more successful whether it's in business or with customers. Well, which I imagine, so after you sold Harris Auto Racing and you had that period of time where you really couldn't do much else in racing as far as Iowa dirt track racing and with your non-compete, was your time that you spent with Brett Moffat, did that take up most of that period? Or, I mean, what else well, did you do to keep was... yourself busy? Um, that took up quite a bit of that time. Um, and I also had a part-time job working. Uh, I had a, a good friend of mine that he owned a business and their business grew so fast that their inventory got so far out of control that they had, you know, like $2 million worth of inventory and there was 500,000 of it that didn't hardly move. And so he kind of came to me and he said, could I hire you to come down and help straighten some of this stuff out? And I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know, man. That sounds like a hell of a challenge to me. So I said, okay, well, here's what I would do. I'll come and help you. But if I can't fix it in six months, then either I'm out of here or I want a marketing job. So because their marketing was way out of, I mean, they were advertising and everything, and their marketing budget was two hundred fifty thousand, and it should have been twenty five, twenty five thousand. And I mean, it was just the, the whole deal was spiraled so far out of control; it was just unreal. And uh, so we ended up, you know, I ended up getting rid of some of the inventory, and you know, they had to take some losses on some of it, but it was just to the point where we reorganized the warehouse, made the warehouse more streamlined. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was probably my largest undertaking I think I've ever under, I've ever done in, in, in a little bit of a stressful situation. Cause keep in mind, I'm kind of the, the bean counter coming in to, tell everybody that we need to cut this, we need to cut that, we need to cut this. So I wasn't really the most popular individual in the whole group. And so there was days where, you know, the, their general manager and I would go round and round and round. And it's just like, dude, it makes, I mean, I've been in this industry long enough to say that you, you're, you're marketing the wrong thing. All the stuff that you're marketing, you don't have a squat for inventory. And all the stuff that you're not marketing, you've got a buku amount of inventory. And first of all, the whole warehouse is 
full of inventory that doesn't even move. And, you know, Everett, the guy that actually owned the place, I mean, he's kind of like, you know, I gave him my general outlook of everything after I'd been in there for a couple of weeks. I mean, he was, well, I knew this was all out of whack. I'm like, well, I'm just giving you my opinion, man. I mean, it, it makes no sense to me why you're doing some of this stuff, but whatever. So that's kind of what I did uh, and worked with Moffat. So then at what point did you decide that you needed to start something up again? Or how did that all come to pass? Well, it, it, I, I always, even when I owned Harris Auto Racing and things like that, I always had a thing about shock absorbers. It was just one of those deals where I always knew that that timing device, there had to be, there was, there was magic in that. And then that was kind of the start of the evolution of the shock absorbers starting to come into play. And so I decided that, uh, that one of the companies that I had worked with before, they had gotten into the shock absorber business. And so that worked out pretty well because they were looking for somebody to kind of help them with some of the shock absorber stuff. And now keep in mind, I don't, at this point in time, I don't, really know that much about the shock absorber i just know if i put this shock absorber on the car versus this shock absorber it does something different and so there's got to be a reason why this is working that way and so we started working with that and that would have been 2007 and then that's kind of when i got back into the business once again just building shock absorbers and uh, i was doing that out of my garage at my home and uh, then it got to the point where it was so busy, um, my son Bobby came to work for me. He would work for me part-time when he was in college, and uh, it, the business just grew. And, of course, I was pretty fortunate because I was in kind of on the bottom of the evolution of the shock absorber thing, so it's worked out very well for us. So at like a very, at a very, very high level without getting like too deep in the weeds, how did you pick up on some of those fine tunings maybe of shocks? I mean, were you tearing shocks apart for fun? Were you taking training from other people? How, how did you pick up on those things? Well, it was a situation where, you know, I, I learned kind of by mistake with race cars, you know, like sometimes we'd damage a shock absorber and we'd have to put a different one on. And all of a sudden the car would work differently. Well, so then it was like, well, what else did we damage? Well, the only thing we changed is the shock absorber. Well, so then it, in my mind, it's like, mm, there's something different here. Why is this different? Well, then when I got to the point where I started wanting to rebuild shock absorbers, I actually went the went to a school that in fact I went to two schools on how to learn the basically the mechanics of the shock absorber and if you put this shim in here it'll do this and if you do this it'll do this well then it kind of got to the point where I started and it's you put it on what they call a dynograph and it runs a shock absorber through a cycle and then it gives you a, a, a drawing of what that shock does in that cycle throughout its whole movement. 
Well, then I would see, well, if I change this shim, it changed that cycle, it changed that line. And then we started just trying different stuff with different customers and, and here, try this and see how this works. I think this should work better. It makes sense. And then sometimes it would work and sometimes, you know, that didn't work so good. So then we have to try it again. So it's just a lot of it was trial and error. And yeah, like you said, some of it was, but I, I did spend, I probably spent two months in different schools with people showing me shock absorbers and how they worked and what the, you know, the preloads were and the different shims and, and how that all worked. So for somebody who's not as familiar with the racing industry, how are the shocks that you guys are using or working with, how do they compare to the shocks somebody might have on their car that they drive to work? Well, the principle is kind of the same. The only thing of it is, is of course, the shock absorbers that are on your passenger car, they they do the same thing. What they do is they control. If you took the shock absorber off your car, the thing would bounce all over the place. You go down a road and the tires would bounce and it would just drive horribly. Because the shock absorbers control when the car compresses or when it when it comes up, as you hit bumps and stuff, the shock absorbers control that spring motion so that it makes a ride, it gives you a, a real ride or, or a good ride. A lot of times, in, 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 I don't know if you noticed this, but you probably have, you'll be going down the interstate and you're, you're passing this car and all of a sudden this left rear wheel of this car is just bouncing up and down in this car and the left front wheel is perfectly straight. Well, that's the car. That car has a bad shock absorber on it, and so. But the mechanics is very similar. We just deal with a lot more higher quality parts. And I think that's another good example of, as an industry, there's so much more technology and engineering that goes into. A race car than what people think oh it it it's like i said it's it's amazing i mean if i could have known some of the stuff that i know today i might have still been a race car driver because my car would have been so superior that it wouldn't have mattered how good i was i would have been able to be better but that was just one of those deals that you just learned over time and trial and error was that ever a goal of yours to be back in a car and racing and win a lot? Or when you made that transition to be more on the building cars side, was that your new focus? Well, I had the opportunity um, to get back in a modified, and I never drove a modified. I always had a late model car. They were, and that was back when they were bigger and heavier and, and, and things like that. So I got the privilege of, uh, hot lap on a modified at Knoxville, Iowa, which Knoxville is a very big, very fast racetrack. And needless to say, uh, when I, after I got out of that car, after that hot lap session, that was my, my driving days were over. I had no desire to ever get back in one of them because I was scared to death. And they had evolved so, so fast. I mean, I went from a 3,200-pound car to a 2,400-pound car, and uh, it, it, was just, it was just totally different, and I just had no desire to do it. 
Well, speaking of modifieds and Knoxville and big racing, which I kind of can't believe we haven't talked about this yet, but so on top of everything that we've talked about that you've done building cars, racing cars, you also have been and still are a race promoter. Yeah. Talk a little bit about yeah. your race promoting hat. Well, hat. once a year we do a race that we call it the Harris Clash. And we kind of came up with the, the name from back when the NASCAR guys used to go to Daytona and they always had the Bush Clash before the Daytona 500. And that's how I kind of came up with the, the name. Well, and originally that that race was kind of started as we had like five or six race racetracks and you had to win a race at that racetrack to qualify to be in this particular race. And then we moved it around from racetrack to racetrack. Well, then it got to the point where whoever the local guy was at that particular racetrack we had always ended up winning because he was the fastest car there at his local racetrack. So then we decided to open it up and we took it to, we approached the, the people at Knoxville Speedway and, and decided it was 19, I'm going to say it's 1995. We went to Knoxville and this is, like I said, this is just a race that I promote. Uh, and then we moved it to Deer Creek and so that's where we have it now. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we do it once a year. Uh, it's surprising how much work actually goes into that to the point where I don't know if I'd want to do too many more of them. I, I've had the opportunity to, uh, I, I was brought the opportunity last year of doing a race with stock cars and hobby stocks at a racetrack similar to what we do at Deer Creek with the Harris Clash. And I thought a lot about it, but it's kind of to the point where when you got something that's going really good, sometimes maybe if I was 20 years younger, I probably would think about it a little bit more. But now it's kind of to the point where let's do what you do best and leave the rest to the rest. And, and so, but this is an exciting deal. We have it every year. Uh, it's usually the first Tuesday in August at Deer Creek Speedway, which is up by Rochester, Minnesota. And, uh, Last year we had like 113 modified, a total of 113 cars. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, I enjoy it. Uh, racers seem to enjoy it. Uh, we've been doing it. Uh, last year was our 31st year. So this will be our 32nd year we've done this. So it's pretty exciting to do something that long. And what makes that race unique is your emphasis on the manufacturers. And that's something that's different. Yeah, we we do support that. I mean, it's kind of to the point where when we originally started, it was it was all us being the manufacturer, and and, and I know how important that things like that used to be for me getting recognition as a manufacturer. And so then, once I was out of the actual manufacturing business, um, we did the race to the point where we supported all the manufacturers, and we get the race car manufacturers involved. And then uh, whoever wins the race, uh, like this last year, uh, Tom Barry's the guy's name that won. He drove a Harris car while Harris Auto Racing was a sponsor of ours. And so then they got a big, Harris Auto Racing got a big trophy themselves 
for winning that race, along with the driver got a trophy himself for winning that race. So it was a pretty big deal, you know, and they've got that, and they got that trophy up in their trophy case in their showroom. And, and so it was, a, it was just as big a deal to them to win it as a chassis manufacturer as what it was for me just to have, you know, do part of it. So what, I mean, what other things are you involved in? I know there's probably a lot of things or a lot of stories that I don't even know. I mean, what, what other ventures or endeavors have you taken on in racing in your career that we haven't talked about? Well, um, I think we've talked about pretty much everything that I can think about. Um, uh, just just been involved like i said i've been involved as a chassis manufacturer i've been involved as a race car driver i've been involved as a promoter Uh, and i think that probably those kind of things have helped me the most because like say for example by being a driver that's really helped me to relate to drivers more because i've done it I've, i've been in there i've been in their shoes i've done that thing um, being a promoter kind of helps me relate to the promoter for how much work actually goes, you know, because when you don't see the amount of work that goes into these, you know, like if the guy that just shows up to the races is a race fan, he sees five hours of entertainment. He has no clue the hundreds of hours that were put into it before that aspect to make this event such an event. It's just like going to a concert or whatever, making these things, you know, it's just not a race. It's an actual event. And and that's like with the Clash, that's kind of what we make. And we've got a, uh, my good friend Chad Weirs, he's a sponsor of the Race of Champions. And now we've got a race at the Clash that you have to be an actual champion to be in that race and it pays a thousand dollars to win for ten laps, and so we what we try to do is give the fan more of an experience, and, and you know just different different experiences, so that they want to come back, and that the racers like their experiences, and they want to come back. Um, you know, like I said, my uh, being a driver coach. Uh, working with different people that's always been fun that's been very rewarding uh, I, i've enjoyed that very much um you know there's i can't say you know I, i've just enjoyed pretty much everything i've done i've been i've been pretty fortunate and and the thing is you know and i can sit here and say i and i can do this and i can do that and i can do that but the thing that People have to understand it's just like at the Harris Clash or whether it's Bob Harris Enterprises or whatever. It's all the people that I have employed that make that happen. I'm just kind of a leader of the group to the point where I can sound like this super smart guy, but I've got a team of people behind me that are making sure that they I get their opinions on things and how they look at things, what things we need to do differently, and, and, and things like that. So it's not it's not all me why things have been successful. It's because I've been very fortunate to be around 
I've surrounded myself around a lot of great people. So as you look back on your career up to this point, let's let's think for a minute, like let's say you were going to write write a book and you were going to write a, a chapter on your favorite your favorite memory or your favorite part of your career, what would that chapter be about? The night that Dale Earnhardt drove our car to victory at Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and he was a seven-time NASCAR champion. So that, I've that always was... wondered, how did that all come? I mean, tell me more about that event. I know that happened, but what, what's the whole story? Well, Keith Kanak is the guy's name that originally started IMCA Racing. And he had kind of been involved in some of these different avenues and different in some of NASCAR stuff and stuff like that. So he got to know Dale Earnhardt. Well, then they convinced Dale Earnhardt and Michael Waltrip, of course, for a fee to come to Cedar Rapids, Iowa and run a challenge race or run a race. Well, then, of course, Kanak contacted me and said, would you put together a car for Dale Earnhardt to drive? Well, see, we had already had a car that we built for Ken Schrader to drive because we, uh, Ken Schrader, who was a NASCAR star also, um, he would always come out and he would run. We, we had a dirt car and we had a pavement car. And he would run some pavement races at Cedar Rapids and he'd run probably about six or seven dirt races throughout the summer. So we already had a car. We just had to put a, a good wrench body on it and paint it black and, and make it look kind of like Dale Earnhardt's car. And so then I got to know Dale through that experience. Well, then um, when I would go down and spend some time with Ken Schrader, we'd go over to Earnhardt's and kind of hang out with him. And, and it, was just, it, was, it was just such a cool deal because, of course, Dale Earnhardt was – the racing god to the world at that point in time so then the flip side of that i mean i know with anybody's career anybody's line of work there's going to be challenges so now let's say you're going to write a chapter on the biggest challenge you've faced in your career what what would that chapter be about well i would have to say when i originally sold the company in 1985 and then happened to take it back over in 1987. Um, that that was a pretty, you know, that, that wasn't in my career plan. That was not what my intention was to be at that point in time. And so, but then, you know, I was like, okay, I've got this challenge and, uh, and I've always tried to take things and do what I did best, and then make it try to make it even better than it was before. And so when we had that opportunity to move to Story City, and uh, you know it was where I had to borrow a fair amount of money, and I had to get some investors, and I mean it was it was very challenging getting that whole package together to make that work. Now. I'm super glad that we did it. You know, I mean, I could have just bailed out on the thing and just got a job and rode off into the sunset or whatever, so to speak. Uh, but I'm glad we did it. 
but that was that was probably five years. It was pretty sketchy, and of course, you know, and, and, that, and that's at the point where I'm raising a young family, and I mean, there there was all kinds of elements into the pie there that um, you know, it was it was a challenging period of time. But once again, it ended up being successful, so I'm I'm happy to do it. But that was a that would have been a challenge. Well, and you talk about you know raising a family, and something that I've always admired about you is that you're a very present dad. Now today, you know, very present grandpa, um, very present with your employees. I mean, when when I worked for you, it was like working for an uncle or or a friend. Um, and even building those very consistent relationships with your customers. But those things all take time and energy. So how, especially in those early years, did you prioritize your family, your friends, you know, the people that mattered most? Was that difficult to do? Um, I think I was young enough that I didn't know completely the difference. Uh, I just, you know, you work off of adrenaline and you just keep things going and, you know, you work as hard as you can. And, and, and I was fairly fortunate that, you know, my family kind of, they, they went along and uh, um, they, they stood by me and did, did things that I wanted to do and needed to do as a career. And, and it was to the point where, like I said, now um, I've got three children and two of them still work for me today. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was challenging, but it was fun challenges. Well, it still is, you know, working with, working with family is, is a blessing and also poses some unique, you know, unique things to overcome. Well, you know, a lot of times people ask me what, you know, if you had one year that you say would be your favorite year. Well, I sold Harris Auto Racing in the year 2000. And then I didn't, I really didn't do a whole lot of stuff in 2001. So I got to be a baseball coach, which was very rewarding and very challenging. And I dealt with coaching baseball just like I deal with my employees and my kids nowadays, where, you know, this is how we need to do this and this is what we need to do to be successful and how can I help you learn to do this type of a deal. And um, so it was always a lot of fun, but and then I I only worked on one I only worked with one customer the whole year, and that was John Logue. And he ended up going on and winning the Super Nationals that year, and so it was just uh, it was a lot of uh, it was very rewarding, but it was rather than being in such a high stress environment with twenty two employees, it was just me doing basically things and then of course and then in 2000 uh 2002 is when i started working with uh ever and the jr motorsports and the inventory thing and then i think i don't remember what year it was when i actually started working with moffitt that would have probably been in 2004 or five so so it was a lot of fun one thing that I know is consistent, and there's probably some names, people that are not familiar with racing. There's probably been a couple names that maybe don't mean as much as they would to me or certainly to you, but the people of racing 
I know for me, and so I would assume, you know, especially as long as you've been involved into the level you have been, the people of the industry really make it special. Oh, it is. I mean, and that's the thing about it. That it's it's uh, um, it's very personable. Um, you, you know, it's. I mean, you, you work very closely with the customers, and you develop such a relationship with the customers that you've got best friends for quite some time. I mean, you know, and I mean, there's still. There's customers that I've got that I probably haven't talked to in two years, and I could call today and say I need help with this, and and snap their finger, they'd be there to help, you know. And you develop those relationships just because, you know. Once again, this is we're still kind of dealing. Most every race car group is a family, so you're kind of just dealing with a whole bunch of families, and. you know, sometimes I think going to some of these racetracks is like going to a family reunion because you get to see half the people that you haven't seen for a while, and, and you know, and it's just like it's like going to the Super Nationals is an example. You know, there's there's people that uh, every year at the Super Nationals, which is Super Nationals is Boone Speedway in Boone, Iowa, and it's the Labor Day, th- and, and then the days behind Labor Day. But anyway, there's people that that's the only time I ever get to see them. We talked to them on the phone a few times, but, you know, you'll get to see them. Well, then the other thing that I guess I forgot to even talk about was the fact that my buddy Chad Weirs and I, we do a deal every every other Monday night. It's a, a kind of a deal like what we're doing right now where only it's it's open for questions. And um, it's called uh, Speed Tips by Bob and Chad. And we just have a great time with that. And it's a deal where, like I said, customers, you know, and I'll get customers that will come up to me and, oh, man, I tell you, we learned so much off of that. You have helped our race car program so much. You know, I, and I wouldn't know this guy from Adam. But, you know, that's kind of what he says. You know, so it's kind of like, Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad you enjoy watching the show, you know. And so we enjoy having that. It's, it's just a lot of fun. Um, we get Sometimes we get quite a few of the same questions, but uh, um, we'll get, oh, you know, and the thing that's I'm ironic about that, we'll get 150 people that will watch that live, but there will be 7,000 people that will view it after the fact. Uh, it's just unreal, and I know it's it's helped my business, and I know it's helped Chad's, but uh, it's just another way of giving back to the racers. That you know, if I can give somebody, if I can help them do something that makes their their life more enjoyable, it's it's got to help everybody. Well, and that's the thing with very few exceptions. There's a lot of a lot of helping and a lot of assistance in in racing you talk about people that you need something when you snap your fingers and they'll come the first person that comes to my mind is kevin stoa which you and i have a very personal experience with i would i've always wanted to hear your because i've told that story i bet i've told that story 25 times to different people i would love to hear your rendition of 
that whole that whole event, that whole fiasco. Like when you tell that story, how do you tell it? <laughs> well, it's a situation where we're coming back from uh uh, what was the town in Wisconsin? Um, Cameron, Wisconsin, I think we were in. That could be. That could I don't be know where we were actually like, staying, but I think the school was, it was like right over the Wisconsin border, like the Minnesota-Wisconsin right. border. Yeah, anyway, so we get out of there about 3.30 in the afternoon. And of course, the forecast is not looking good for on the way home, but come heck or high water, I'm going to get home. So anyway, we're... We're on our way home, and we stopped for gas, and I'm like, yeah, this, I don't know, this isn't looking good. Well, maybe we can make it. We can make it. We can make it. And at that so point, how far, up, we were in what, like the Twin Cities at that point? Lake. Or was that well, when we were in Owatonna? Yeah. Owatonna. That was, yeah, Owatonna. Right. Yep. So anyway, so then we get to Albert Lee, and things are looking really sketchy. And I'm thinking, it'll be okay. You know, it's not a big deal. I've been through snowstorms before. No big deal. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, it's white out and everything. So we're following this car. Well, this guy drives in the ditch and sure as heck, I felt the right front kind of fall down. I'm like, no, this is not going to be good. So here we are. We're in the ditch because, of course, once we started in the ditch, the trailer just shoved us in the ditch. So we don't have a scoop. We don't have nothing like that. So we're 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 taking totes and dumping the stuff out of the totes and trying to use them as a scoop to get out of the wall. And and if we wouldn't have had the trailer, we'd have probably been able to get out. I think we could have. I think we did a hell of a job. We ditched the macaroni out of the Tupperware and started scooping. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so then... But the trailer shoved us in, and we couldn't move the actual trailer was the problem. And so here we are. It is a freaking blizzard. And, of course, well, what the hell do we do now? Well, this happened to be we're, we're just south of Albert Lee, and, and my old buddy Kevin Stoa, he lives in Albert Lee, so we called him. And, of course, you know, I don't know if I, if I, if I was – if I look back on it now, thank God he came and got us, but he risked his life to come and get us. And then we unhooked the trailer, and we actually got the truck. He hooked onto the truck, and we got the truck out, but we had to leave the trailer there in, in the ditch. And so then we got to his place, and, of course, he's got three little boys. And, and of course, you know, I don't even remember where you slept out on the couch, I think, or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't remember. <laughs> so they had a bedroom in the basement. And, of course, you know, this is, gosh, I don't know what time of the day. This it was is. probably like, mid, like late, late, late on a Saturday night, right? Or early, yeah. early Sunday yeah. morning. Yeah. So anyway, then I'm thinking about this, you know, I'm kind of trying to go to sleep. We just went in the ditch and. I've never been in the ditch in a snowstorm, and I've got you to worry about because you're with me. And I'm like, God, and I got her in the ditch, and oh my God. Anyway, so finally I fell asleep, and it 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 couldn't. I swear to God, it wasn't 30 minutes after I shut my eyes. All of a sudden, above me, there's these six little feet running circles around this table, and I'm thinking, Oh my God. 
what did I just wake up to here? Because we showed up in the middle of the night. I mean, his wife was up, but kids were in bed. They don't know we're here. So this had to have been 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, What an experience. And we were there, what, two days? Yeah, our dumbasses were like, oh, we'll get up and leave middle of the day Sunday. I remember, which... It's funny to hear from your perspective how worried you were about me being with you and being in the ditch. Because, like, especially once we were out and I'm like, okay, we're not going to have to sleep on the side of the road, which I would have been down for. I wouldn't have quit on you. I mean, I would have hung in there. But I, wouldn't I, was have like, lot of <laughs> I was like, well, you know what? This is a great excuse to skip. I was in college, so great excuse to skip class. I get to hang out with my boss and some new friends and it's snowy and I get to drink coffee and just sit around and do nothing. This is cool. <laughs> so yeah. we were there all day we Sunday. Out, we got out, yeah, we finally got out about noon on Monday. Yep. Because I remember we had to like take everybody to school and yep. we ended up going, the interstate was still closed. So we went with Kevin to work. Work, yep. And then we had to go for lunch. But yeah, yeah that that's was just... a very good pizza place. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they only had like three kinds. They had like pepperoni, cheese, sausage. If you didn't like that, yeah. you're going hungry. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. It was really good. But then the, the funniest part or the coolest part was the... Uh, was it, Is it Kevin's oldest that really oh, took yeah. a liking to you. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he wanted to be a crew chief, and Kevin told him that I was a famous crew chief, and he was my long-lostest buddy. Yeah, their eyes and got I, about this big. I'm like, oh, great. Not that I don't love kids, but it's just, uh, you know, after you've kind of been through the stress of the night, and you're like, oh, no. But at least we had, it was warm, or we'd have been in that ditch till, well, we'd have been in that ditch till Monday. Yep. Yeah, we uh, we lucked out on the deal. We got a nice place to stay. We got yep. a hot meal. We had good entertainment. So good entertainment. it really panned out pretty well. It was really, it ended up being a lot of fun. It was a, it was a good time. Then on Monday, we went and got groceries so that we did make sure they, the refrigerator was full and stuff like that. So we got groceries for them feeding us for three or four meals. So it was pretty cool. Oh, yeah, it couldn't have we, been a better deal. Then we went to uh, we went to Shopco in Albert Lee too, which that's the last time I think I was in a Shopco because right after that they all closed. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, what a memory. <laughs> yeah, it was. So then we go out to figure out, we were going to try to figure out how we were going to get the trailer out. Well, there was no trailer. So then we had to figure out where the trailer was, and it had gotten towed. So then we ended up going to the tow tow place that had the trailer and got the trailer. And I think we were we got home about what five five thirty six o'clock on Monday night. Yeah, I don't know. I that whole weekend is just such like it's always been such a blur for me. The other thing I remember is that you tried Culver's ice cream for the first time. Oh yeah. Yep. Had yep. to stop in Mason City or Clear Lake, whatever's on the interstate. Clear Lake. Yep. Yeah, Clear Lake. 
Yeah, no, that was fun. It ended up being a good time. I mean, it was but there for a while. I was like, oh, what? And then, see, the thing was, the year before that, we did a school up in northern Minnesota, and Amy and I came home in a freaking blizzard, too. I think we actually made it home. But it wasn't as big of a blizzard. Needless to say, I haven't done a school in Minnesota or Wisconsin since then. Well, that's what I was going to ask. I don't think you've done any northern schools since. No, I have not done one since. Yeah. Well, then you ran into problems, too, when you went to Pennsylvania, because wasn't that right at the start of COVID, like right before COVID happened? Right before COVID happened. Yeah. Yes. So you really hit it three years in a row. You just better not leave Iowa. Yeah, we went back there last year, and the guy wanted us to come back this year, and I'm like, no. And I had a guy that wanted us to do a school out in Idaho. I said, no. I do three schools a year, and they're at my shop. That way, at least. Well, then even last year at my shop, I got to drive home in half of a blizzard. And, of course, I never that stuff never used to bother me. But ever since we went in the ditch, that that driving where I can't see where I'm going thing. No. Well, I remember after after we got back, it wasn't too long before. I think your your fear of being in the ditch convinced there may be a really good salesman stuck you with like a heavy duty pickup that you had for about yeah. a month <laughs> yeah no doubt about that i was i'd had enough of that whole deal man yeah and, and the big thing was is the tires weren't that great on that truck if i had new tires on it probably would have been fine so what you're saying is I should have filed a lawsuit for having like being you know endangerment employee endangerment. Yeah, easily. <laughs> but to round this all out, I mean that's to me just one example of like racing is people. And, oh, it is. I mean those are relationships we still have today. I saw Kevin and one of his sons at a race this summer, and I haven't seen him and probably since then, but to go over and give them a hug and catch up and you know we're friends we stay in touch and that's what racing is well that's what it is you know you 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 make good friends you know it's just like other things that people do i'm quite sure there you know there's there's bonds that they form with other sports and stuff too but right racing is just like i said it's just uh, been something that's been all my life and and all of the people that I've met in my life, it's just, uh, it's just been very special. So to use the book analogy, just one more time, because that's something you and I talked about for a long time, which is trying to get a book written for you. And I still, I still am in that camp. So you want to write it, we'll write it. But you write in your book and you're going to write a chapter on what you would tell your let's say 25 year old self 25 year old bob knowing what you know now about your career and the trajectory that your life has taken what what would you tell 25 year old bob um i don't know i I probably would of course it's just like everything you know when you're talking about your 25-year-old self, you know, there's so many things that you know now that you have life experiences that, you know, 
And of course, getting that 25-year-old self to listen would be an, another chore. But, you know, just patience. You know, I, mean, I, I used to make maybe make some things a little bigger deal than they were. And, uh, you know, just rely on other people. Um, once again, like I said, just uh, be more, maybe be more open-minded. Um, but I don't know if I'd really change a whole lot. I mean, there's definitely some things, you know, that I could think of monetarily that I would definitely do differently. But uh, other than that, um, I, I would just, patience would be the, the biggest thing because that, that, that has been something that has taken a while to come. And, and I, you know, that's one thing that, the 68-year-old Bob has a lot more patience. Would you say that's the biggest biggest thing you've picked up in your career or the biggest, as you look back, something that you really yeah, gained? Yeah, I, I gained a lot of patience because, you know, it's, well, and you've seen these things written and all these, you know, these um, positive notes that you see and, and you, you know, and, some signs that you see at gas stations that, you know, wisdom sayings and all that, you know, and, and that's probably the thing that I would have to say is the most is the patience of, you know, just not necessarily always trying to make everything happen, but sometimes maybe let things happen. You know, I mean, you still have a certain amount of control, but not be so over anxious about it or, you know, just not lose sleep over things that you, number one, half the stuff you can't change anyway. So focus on the stuff that you can change and the stuff, you know, kind of, you know, isn't there, there's a prayer about that where you're focused on, give me the wisdom to change the things that I can change and, and, and the wisdom to not worry about the things that I can't change or something to that point. And that's probably, that would be my chapter. Yeah. Well, I know that as somebody that's known you for at least relative to my life, quite a long time um, and has worked with you and has you know, been both, you know, by your side as an employee and a, a buddy in the ditch, but also as a friend and, um, you know, sees you as an excellent leader, an excellent friend and an excellent mentor in life as well. Um, there's, you've had some incredible experiences to share. And I think when you sit down and decide to write that book, you're going to have a lot more than just the three chapters that we talked about. Yeah, I'm quite sure there probably is. You know, it's just one of those deals where I don't know if I want to do that or not. I mean, it would be fun, but yeah, it, when you, I've read some of those books, and you, you know, you think about some of those things that people put in them, and it's like, really, they did that? They did that too? Wow! Holy moly! I didn't know that that happened to them. You know, it's just it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure too, I mean, to be in, in the position you're in, there's probably things that we've talked about tonight that are just, you know, part of, part of life. Like, yeah, I did this, I did that. 
And there's going to be things that people listen to from this episode. They're like, wow, I can't believe that. I can't believe that happened or this. And so it's very interesting when we all, when you share your experiences and somebody else listens to them or knows about them, what you might think of as being just normal or just part of the story is really interesting or stands out to other people. Well, and, you know, and I try to be pretty humble. I mean, like I said, I, you know, there's some things that I tell people that they think are pretty exciting. And, you know, to me, it's like, uh, I just part of life, man. I, I wouldn't know the difference. So I've always, I've always been kind of tried to be very humble about things. Um, I think that's just very important to be myself and just do do what I can do. And my 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 famous phrase that I always used to use when I owned hair solder racing was, "Do what you do best and leave the rest for the rest." I would say you've embodied that with everything that you do. I mean, because it's kind of a little bit with what we're doing now. We're sort of doing a little of this stock car stuff, and we're doing a little of this and a little of that, and. And probably by the end of the week, we're going to probably have to sit down and have a meeting. And, and some of that stuff is going to, we're just going to have to get back to the, or we're stretching ourselves too thin in some areas. And, and uh, we just need to settle back a little bit and work on perfecting what we're doing and maybe not do so much. Or well, not that- try to do too much. Yeah, it's it's something that I know when I was working for you that was that was an emphasis which was a great lesson to learn especially as a, you know, a freshman in college and I think that's something that's done well for you in your career. Well, you know, there's always I mean, the grass is always green over there on that other side of the fence and so there's always well we could get part of that, we could get part of that, we could get part of that. Well, yeah, but I've never been one that I'm not a big believer in doing things half-ass. I mean, if, if either you do it, you do it well, or don't do it. I mean, I, I'm just not, and that's kind of what our reputation as a company has been. We do quality stuff, and uh, you know, we're, we try to be very honest with people and and treat them fairly and stuff like that. Where when you get stretched too thin, now all of a sudden you can't. You can't give out that quality that you normally would be able to give out. And that quality is what brings about tomorrow. Well, I I think quality is a, a hallmark of the work that you do, the relationships that you build, the try to, the life that you aim to lead. And so that's it's that quality that made me wanna wanna chat with you tonight. Like I said, I know you for a long time and I wanted to make sure I had a chance to share some of that quality with other people too, because I think it's it's pretty special. Well, I know that you and I could could chat for a long time. I one of my favorite things when I was working for you was when I worked on Fridays and we'd be there in the afternoon and everybody would leave a little early, you know, three thirty or four o'clock, and we would kind of round out our days with some some Friday chats for the last kind of half hour of the day. Um, so I know you and I could chat for a long time, but I want to yeah. 
let you go and get back to your evening and let you hang out with with Rusty and um, but thank you again for for your time and appreciate you jumping on here with me as I'm sure you figured out listening to this episode Bob and I could have talked for another two hours um, so maybe we'll save that for another episode but um, I don't have much else to add like I said I am someone that's really excited to know Bob. I'm honored to call him a friend and a mentor. I mean, his friendship and leadership is pretty special to me. So this episode was one that I was really excited to record. Um, I don't have anything else to add. I feel like you've listened to enough. You're probably tired of my rambling. So before we go, as always, if you enjoyed the pod, feel free to give me five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. Um, or make sure to subscribe and turn on those notifications so you never miss an episode because, fingers crossed, we'll be back to a regular posting schedule momentarily. Thank you for sharing some of your time with me. I've been honored to spend some of my time with you. And as always, I hope you have a fabulous day. Take care, and I'll see you next time. Bye.